Thank you, Tommy. Tommy Prado is one of our students who's away at Bible College. She goes to Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta. I think that's right, California near San Diego. So we are delighted to have her home. This is her last weekend home, and she was kind enough to share that beautiful, beautiful song with us. Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Philemon. That's found in the New Testament, the book of Philemon. It's a tiny book. It's right before the book of Hebrews. And what I told the early church congregation, when in doubt, consult the table of contents. Because some of these books are very small and not that familiar necessarily to us. Book of Philemon. Chapter 1. A few years ago, the Gatorade Company launched a campaign with a theme, Be Like Mike, implying if we would merely drink their product, we would become like Michael Jordan. Other enterprising entities picked up on this campaign. A man by the name of Pat Williams wrote a book, How to Be Like Mike. And the byline of that book was, Think like Mike, achieve like Mike, be like Mike. There was even a movie produced entitled Like Mike. The story is of a 14-year-old boy who was orphaned, and he happened to find a pair of sneakers, and inside these used sneakers were the initials MJ, Michael Jordan. He put the sneakers on, and he became a superstar in the NBA. Imagine that. Amazing. Well, what all these advertisers and entrepreneurs would have us to believe is that we can be just like Michael Jordan. We might be able to be like MJ in what we drink and what we wear, but not in what we achieve. Kobe and LeBron notwithstanding will never be like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's in a league of his own. It's doubtful there will ever be another athlete in the field of basketball, at least, who can approximate his achievement. There is someone, however, whom we can be like. And long after MJ is forgotten, this person will still have people, hundreds of people, yes, hundreds of thousands of people trying to be like him and with many of those achieving their goal. I'm speaking of the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Imitate me. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. The Holy Spirit of God says to us through the Word of God, Be like Paul. Now that does not necessarily resonate with us as well as be like Mike, but it's achievable for us because God has commanded us to do this. And by the way, this is those of us who know Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Christ yet... Potentially, that could be true of you as well. And whatever God commands us to do, He makes possible. Well, let's read together Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is commonly called the salutation. And most often when we're reading this part of one of Paul's letters, we just sort of skip through it because we want to get to more meaty matters. But this is quite instructive, these three verses. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul say about himself? How did Paul view himself? Are there things about the way in which Paul viewed himself that are applicable to you and to me if we're followers of Christ? Quite obviously there are. The first thing which he says about himself here in verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In recent times, we have seen political prisoners, the likes of Nelson Mandela, who spent almost 30 years as a political prisoner in South Africa. We've seen criminal prisoners like Martha Stewart, who spent maybe eight months a year. I don't know how long she was in prison. Paul, technically speaking, was a prisoner of Rome. But actually, he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was a spiritual prisoner. And you might say, well, none of us is in prison. That's obvious. We're here today. But all of us have the capacity to be prisoners of Christ Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we are making every thought to be taken captive to Christ. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly with all wisdom. And the result will be that our minds will be captured by the mind of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have the mind of Christ. And because we have the mind of Christ accessible to us by the Spirit of Christ through the Word of God, then we can be captive to Jesus Christ. He wants to be your captor today. He insists upon it. If you and I are going to be people like Paul, he's going to be our captor. Now, you're not in prison, as I've mentioned, but you may be in a prison of sorts. You may feel confined. You may be confined in a relationship that you want to get out of desperately, but really there's no way you can escape that relationship. You may be confined in a job that you hate. You may be confined in a body that does not cooperate with your soul and with your spirit. You may be confined geographically. You may hate being here in El Paso. You want to be somewhere else. But do you know that your place of confinement and my place of imprisonment is the place where we can do our best service to the Lord Jesus Christ? Think about Paul. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? He was a prisoner. He was a prisoner in Rome. And Paul was an activist. We know that. Paul had a hard time sitting still. Paul was seemingly constantly on the move doing the work of the Lord. But every once in a while, God had to set him down. He had to settle him down and place him in a prison. Twice at least he was imprisoned. Maybe three times he was imprisoned. And seven of the 13 books, which we call books of our New Testament, only 27, seven of the 27 New Testament books were written by the Apostle Paul while he was a prisoner. Aren't you glad he was put in prison? And Paul had the same viewpoint. He speaks of himself in this way in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, I am an ambassador in chains. You talk about a healthy self-image. Here was a prisoner. And he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. God and Jesus want you to be an ambassador for Christ in the difficult place of your life because that's what's going to make non-believing people sit up and take notice. How do we react when we're under pressure, like Paul found himself under pressure. Now, Paul didn't just write letters with ink and papyrus, though. 
Paul also wrote what he calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, living epistles, people. The Bible tells us about Paul's imprisonment. In fact, he himself writes to the Philippians, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear to, throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He was in chains for Christ. It was an opportunity for him to see the gospel spread because there was a changing of the guard periodically who overlooked this Roman prisoner, Paul. And the Bible tells us in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 22, as Paul sends his final greetings to the Philippian church from Rome, he said, and the saints, especially those who were members of the household of Caesar, send their greetings to you. Especially those people. How did they get to become saints? It's because those prisoners who came to Paul, instead of moping and whining and feeling sorry for himself, what did he do? He was an ambassador in chains. And he looked for the opportunity to share Jesus Christ with everyone who came his way. And some of them responded properly to the gospel, received Jesus Christ. So he had living letters also. We can have living letters too. We may never write the kind of things which Paul wrote, but we can impress people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then we can have these living letters. Prior to our involvement in World War II with Japan, North Korea, or Korea as it was then known, was already under the dominion of Japan. And there was a Christian woman in that nation. Her name is An Kim. I'm not sure if she's still living. She was a devout Christian. She would spend long hours every day praying. And she meditated on God's Word. She learned so many passages of Scripture she could quote from memory. And one morning during her quiet time, the Lord spoke to her, and it was an alarming message which he gave her. The Lord said to her, On, you are to go to the Diet of Japan, which is the Congress of Japan, and you are to, to, to deliver this message to them. This is the message. Leaders of Japan... Unless you repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, Japan will be judged by God. She bought a one-way ticket to Japan. Not because she was too poor to buy a round-trip ticket, but because she figured if she did what the Lord told her to do, her life was gone. So she went there, and through a series of miracles, she was able to get into the Diet of Congress in the spectators' section in one of the alcoves. When there was a break in the debate on the floor of the Congress of Japan, she stepped forward in the most distinct and loud voice she could muster. She said exactly what the Lord had told her to say. She said, Leaders of Japan, unless you repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, Japan will be judged. Those who witnessed that said you could have heard a pin drop. And then, as she expected, she was arrested. But rather than being detained in Japan, she was deported to her native Korea. And when she got back there, she was placed in a cell 10 feet by 25 feet with 20 other female inmates. No sanitation at all. And every day, and understand this is before 1941, sometime around 1940, every day the authorities in the prison would take her out of that awful cell 
with all of its stench and wretchedness. Take her out of that cell and bring her into a pristine room that had food on a table and it was beautiful and clean. And then they would say to her, Miss Kim, if you will bow to the Shinto shrine in this room, you will be released. But she declined every time she was asked to do that. She declined. And meanwhile, when she'd go back to her cell, she was sharing Jesus Christ with her inmates. Many of them came to know Jesus, the majority, quite honestly. And many of the guards who were guarding her came to know Jesus Christ as well. She so frustrated her captors that finally they, in an effort to get her to follow through, they didn't want to be defeated by this little Korean woman. She so frustrated them that the captor said, if you will just promise us when you leave, we're going to let you go today, if you will promise us that once you are released, you will go, and it doesn't have to be in a conspicuous place because there are Shinto shrines all over Korea. If you will just find one in an out-of-the-way place and you will bow and promise allegiance to the Shinto God, then we will release you. And she said, I can't do that. Because for a Christian to promise something is the same as doing it. I can't do it. She went back into herself. This went on and on and on every day for years. Meanwhile, her hair came out due to malnourishment. She went blind basically because of malnourishment. Her stomach was bloated. And one of the guards who had, whom she had led to Christ came to see her one night and told her, that tomorrow will be the day of your execution. But another guard and I have made a way for your escape. And she looked up into the face. She couldn't see his face, just it was a blur to her, of this man whom she had introduced to Christ. And she said, look at me. I'm in no condition to make any kind of escape. I'll just go to sleep here tonight, and tomorrow when they take my life, I will be with my Lord. I'll be free of this awfulness that I've experienced. And she very contentedly fell asleep. She awoke to strains of all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. She thought she died and gone to heaven. (laughs) But what had happened, the Japanese that day had surrendered to the Allied forces and she was free. Here was a woman who was a prisoner, not of the Japanese government, but of Christ Jesus. And there were living epistles, people still walking the face of the earth, even if she's dead. And there will be generation after generation of people who will be able to trace their spiritual heritage back to this dear sister in Christ, this prisoner of Christ Jesus. Are you a prisoner of Christ Jesus today? Are you really? If you're not... You're failing to be what God wants you to be. He wants you to yield yourself in such a way that you will see Jesus as your captor. The second thing which Paul says in verse 1 about himself, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, he does not explicitly call himself a brother. However, by saying our brother, he's saying I'm a brother too, right? This word brother is used in some form or another, at least 230 times in the New Testament to describe those of us who are Christians. The most common word, about 250 to 260 times, is the word disciple. A close second is this word brother. And the word brother, by the way, literally means from the same womb. So 
he speaks of himself along with Timothy and Philemon and Apphia and Archippus and every other believer in the church at Colossae. This was addressed to a man who lived in the church of Colossae in Asia Minor. All those people were his brothers. Now, how did he become a brother? A brother implies a common parent, and the common parent is God the Father. Look at verse 3 of this passage of Scripture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to be a brother the same way any of us becomes a brother. He became a brother, and really more importantly, a son of God by the grace of God. God's grace is what enabled him to become a child of God. Remember Paul's story. He was on his road to Damascus, and he was on his way to persecute Christians. And as Larry read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, his own testimony is, I was a blasphemer. You know what that means? He took the name of God in vain. That doesn't mean just using it as a curse word. He did things in the name of God which were for his own sake. That's what blaspheming meant for him. He was a persecutor of the church, and he was a violent aggressor is the way the New American Standard translates it. And that carries with it the idea of physically hostile. The Bible tells us he went from house to house dragging Christians out, taking them to court. He had a warrant in his hand when he was arrested by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was going to take those people so they could be tried in a court and punished, probably punishable by death, for blaspheming. This was the kind of man he was. But Christ came into his life by grace. Was he seeking Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus? He was seeking to kill Christians. And the Lord intervened and selected him to be his mouthpiece to the Gentiles. It was all by grace that he came to the Lord. But please consider, Paul is writing this letter, personal letter, to Philemon. And Philemon was already a brother. So I thought grace just has to do with our coming to know Christ. I thought grace is how we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. Isn't that what we believe? And if we believe that, is that true? By all means, it's true. However... Grace is much broader than just the initiatory act of God to get us into the family of God. Grace is all the blessings and benefits that are the result of the initial saving act of God in our lives by grace. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Where does strength come from for living the Christian life? It comes only by the grace of God. It's not something that you have to work up within you. It's something that is in you if you know Christ. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul encountered Jesus after he had met him for the first time, you may remember when he was asking Jesus to remove the thorn in his flesh three times. And then what does Jesus say to Paul? He says, Paul, enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, the power for living the Christian life, the power for enduring, the power for making it through this difficult time in your life, Paul, is to be found in the grace that I'm giving to you. You can't do anything on your own. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus says, right? So he came into the family of God by grace. And he lived the Christian life by grace. That's the way 
any brother or sister in Christ will live the Christian life. It's by grace. It's by His power, not our own power. Not at all. But notice the rest of this salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he add the word peace and why does he place the word peace where it's found? In all of his greetings, he never puts peace before grace. Now what we tend to do, we want peace without grace. That's like getting the cart before the horse. You have to have the grace of God before you can have, first of all, peace with God and then peace in your heart. I guarantee you there's more than one person here today who's aching for peace in your heart. And the reason you have no peace, more than likely, is because you have no grace. You've never opened your life to the grace of God. You are seeking to strive to know God and to do what God wants you to do, but you've never really allowed Christ to exhibit His grace in your life, just to yield to Him and say, Lord, take over. I can't do it. Is there anybody here like that today? More than likely, there is a person like this. What kind of brother was Paul? Well, let's read a little further in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother. Okay? And the word brother is in italics in the New American Standard Bible, and rightly so, because the word brother is not even in the original text. All he says is our beloved Brother is implied, and that's quite fine, but he loved his brothers. He loved them. And if we're going to be like Paul, we're going to love one another. Just like Jesus loves us, we're going to accept one another. Every once in a while, I have this spirit of criticism which wells up within me. I am a critical soul. Really, bottom line, that's my nature. That's my temperament, to be critical. And I feel it rising up within me. And when I do that, I think about what the Bible says in Romans chapter 15. It says, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. That's love, my friend. And the Apostle Paul understood that. He was a loving brother. As I was meditating on this in preparation for the sermon this week, I was asking, Lord, what does the Bible say about a brother? And my mind was drawn to Proverbs 17, 17, which says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And in Hebrew poetry, which the book of Proverbs is an example of, a poet would write one line, A friend loves at all times, and instead of being able to rhyme, there was no such animal in Hebrew poetry. You didn't rhyme things. But you could state the same thing in the second line to emphasize what you've just said. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. So what Solomon is saying there under inspiration of the Spirit of God is this. He's saying, if you are a friend who loves at all times, you're the same as a brother who is born for adversity. The word adversity is a word which suggests the harassment and torment engendered by an enemy. So when you are being tormented by an enemy, the way you know you have a real brother or sister in Christ is, does someone come to you in your point of difficulty and stick with you no matter what's going on in your life? Or when trouble comes to you, do you bail out? Do they bail out? I mean, and look, this is the better way to talk about this, please. This is not about my thinking or your thinking. How many real brothers or sisters do I have? 
Notice, we're to be like Paul. We're to be a loving brother or sister to other people. A lot of the problems in the church could be solved if we just quit thinking so much about ourselves and got an outward perspective. Paul never thought about himself. He was always looking outwardly. And this is the life of Christ. The life of Christ is one which looks outwardly, not inwardly, not introspectively. There is a place for introspection, but not a large place for it in the Christian life. So we're to love each other. We're born for adversity. Here's what you and I will be like if we're this kind of brother or sister in Christ. First of all, when we see a brother in adversity, we're not going to turn our backs on him and run in the middle of his adversity. In 1776, General George Washington, commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, appointed Joseph Reed as his adjutant general. He was a very trusted friend. He was much loved by General Washington. The reason we know that, we have lots of correspondence still existent from Washington to lots of people. And the way in which he would sign off when he would write letters to Joseph Reed was different than any other existing documents which we had. Normally, he would sign off by saying, your obedient servant, George Washington. But whenever he would write to Joseph Reed, he would say, your affectionate and obedient servant. This younger man was a man that he sought to mentor, and he cared very deeply for this young man. But after the Continental Army, under the leadership and rather poor leadership at this particular juncture in his generalship, General Washington had sent a letter to General Charles Lee, who was second in command in the Continental Army and was campaigning north in upstate New York. But Washington had lost four battles in quick succession at Brooklyn, Kipps Bay, White Plains, and Fort Washington. Then he had had his forces walk away without so much as a fight from Fort Lee. And Joseph Reed was upset about it, and he inserted his own personal letter to General Lee, and this is what that letter said. Just an excerpt from it. Listen to it. I do not mean to flatter or praise you at the expense of any other, but I confess I do think it is entirely owing to you that this army and the liberties of America, so far as they are dependent on it and not totally cut off, you have decision, a quality often wanted in minds otherwise valuable. Oh, General, an indecisive mind is one of the greatest misfortunes that can befall an army. And it did not take a genius to figure out he was referring to General Washington, his mentor, the man who put all of his trust in him as his second in, in terms of giving advice. How often have I lamented it this campaign? All circumstances considered, we are in a very awful and alarming situation, one that requires the utmost wisdom and firmness of mind. As soon as the season will admit, I think yourself and some others should go to Congress and form the plan of the new army. What was he doing? He was undermining the man who had put his trust in him. Here, Washington was a poor judge of the brotherhood of this man, wasn't he? He was a poor judge of the brotherhood of this man. This man turned his back on. That's not what a brother's born for, not for turning his or her back if it's a sister on, on us when we're in trouble. But that person sticks with you, especially in times of difficulty. Are you that kind of brother to somebody? Is it your inclination to criticize or is it your inclination to support during times like that? Many of you are fans of the Lord of the Rings series and you may have a favorite character, maybe Gandalf or Aragorn or Frodo or 
Legolas. I don't know who your favorite figure. Mine is Samwise Gamgee. I give him my vote hands down. And the reason is because he's this kind of brother. He risks his life. He saves the life. He protects. He provides for Mr. Frodo. And there's a a scene as they're making their way to the mountain of fire in Mordor to throw the ring in that will bring peace to their region of the world. And then this is what Sam says to Frodo. He says, Mr. Frodo, I cannot carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And he picks him up and he carries him. That's a brother born for adversity. Do you have a brother or sister like that? Are you that kind of brother or sister in Christ? And let's not leave Aphia out. She's a sister. She's an important person, probably Philemon's wife. To Aphia, our sister. And let's remember what the Bible says in Galatians 3. There is neither male nor female in Christ Jesus, for you are all one in Christ. We have different roles in the church, but all of us are valuable to the Lord, regardless of gender. It makes no difference at all. And Aphia is not the only woman mentioned in the New Testament. There are several others, especially in the latter part of the book of Romans, whom Paul refers to. So Paul was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was a brother also and a loving brother at that. But he goes on to say here in verse 1, he was a fellow worker Who was he working with? Philemon is who he's working with. But more importantly, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 9, he says, we are God's fellow workers. Hey, we're part of an undefeatable team. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. And when we're with the Lord and we're working together, we're part of this team to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. Now, what is God's purpose? What is the work that God's called us to? The same work that he gave to Philemon and also to the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 2 again. The last line, to the church in your house. Until the third century, there is no archaeological evidence that any church met in a building like this. People met mainly in homes. Calvin suggests that what this is referring to is the substantial household, which would have included not only the children of Philemon and Aphia, but also their large number of slaves, more than likely. And this is going to be addressed, this whole issue of slavery in this book, by the way, is pretty interesting. As we study through it, we'll continue next week where we leave off today. But he says that's the situation. Now, as admirable as that is, and I think all of us who are heads of households should see ourselves as pastors in our home. We should assume that role. But I don't think that's what this is about. The church actually met in his home, and it was made up of more people than his household. We don't know how many people. We knew he, know he's a man of means, so he invited people in. He and his wife hosted these people. So the church met in their home. Let me tell you this. A home is the ideal place for a gathering of believers. It has all the elements conducive to New Testament expression of worship and ministry in the home. But the home is not the only place. And the reason I say that, not on my own authority, I say this based on the authority of what Jesus teaches. And let me tell you why. You know, in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and she gets him or tries to get him sidetracked in a discussion about 
Where is the appropriate place to worship? What was her argument? Mount Gerizim, not Mount Moriah. And Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're all wet. God's not interested in the place of worship. He's interested in the hearts of the worshipers. So there can be a house church meeting where there is no real life and there's no one really worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth just as much as there can be a place like this where there's no life and there's no real seeking after God in a spirit that Jesus alludes to and that God responds to. But regardless of where we meet, we're to worship the Lord with a whole heart. Now, what does this have to do with us? How are we fellow workers? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, None of us can be like Paul in the fact that he was an apostle. That's impossible. The Bible says he gave some to be apostles, talking about Christ, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people, the saints of God, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Without exception, every one of us who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ has been given the responsibility to do what God has called us to do individually to build up the body of Christ. That's the work God's called us to, to build His church here on earth because that's the expression of Jesus' life here on earth. To build the church. I'm not talking about Coronado Baptist Church. I'm talking about the body of Christ, which is far, far more far-flung than any local expression. But we need to work in building this body up. And I'm not just talking about adding to its numbers. I'm talking about giving real strength to the body by exercising the gifts. Now, there's one final thing that Paul says about himself in this passage. He says in verse 2, To Archippus, our fellow soldier. He uses this term, fellow soldier, one other time in the New Testament. In Philippians 2, he talks about Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier. And a fellow soldier implies a commander. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Because, and I'm paraphrasing the next verse, if you're a soldier, you don't get all tied up in civilian affairs Rather, you focus upon your commander's wishes. We have a lot of people who've been in the military. You understand that. A man under authority. What does this say to you and me? We're in a fight, but our fight is not the kind of fight that men fight in this world. Our weaponry is not carnal. It's otherworldly, and it's powerful for the destruction of the strongholds of the enemy in our lives and in the lives of other people. What are our weapons? Prayer, the Word of God, love, fellowship, all these things which we've been talking about together today. And the life of a soldier is not an easy life. We had a man in our early worship service who just came back from Iraq, an officer in the United States Army. He was separated from his wife for months. He was newly wed, and then all of a sudden he's taken away to serve our country. That's a tough life. The life of following Jesus Christ as Paul followed is not an easy life. It's an austere life. It is a focused life because the soldier is focused upon his mission. And what is the mission of Coronado Baptist Church? Just turn your bulletin over there a minute. 
the front of it if you have one, and let's read it together. I don't know if I can even remember it, but I'll try. The mission of Coronado Baptist Church is to glorify God by joining God's Spirit in loving all peoples, telling them the good news of Christ Jesus, and developing them into obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, equipped to minister. I told you I couldn't say the whole thing. I knew the developing part, but I didn't get the last part. This is our mission. We're to be focused on that mission if we're going to be what Christ wants us to be, to build up His church. And it's also a life of submission. We have to be willing to submit to the Lordship. Notice the way in which Paul describes Jesus, not Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the boss of my life, my commander-in-chief, my master, all these things that are implied in this passage of Scripture. In the brothers Karamazov, Father Zosima, who is an unconditional lover, a lot like Paul in that regard, he makes this statement. He says, what is Christ's word without an example? What was he saying? He was saying, we need to put flesh on our message. We need to embody the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been doing some research, reading lately on postmodernism and wanting to reach, personally having a heart to reach people in this generation who are biblically illiterate, don't know much about the Lord at all. What I've learned is they don't believe in any absolute truth, so there's a reluctance to trust anything that's communicated as being absolutely true. Now, here's what I believe, and I believe it unapologetically. I believe that the Word of God, all of it, is true. All of it. And we need to continue to teach God's Word unashamedly and to teach the truth in a relevant way, but to teach God's Word. We could make an error in correcting and just wanting to put the Bible aside and say, just love people. That doesn't work. That goes to seed very fast. Suppose someone broke into your home tonight and was standing at the foot of your bed threatening you and your family and you pulled your pistol out of the drawer that stands beside your bed and pointed it at him and said, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to shoot you. And he said, I don't believe in guns. Would that keep you from using the gun? Hardly. You'd use it. So just because people don't believe God's Word is trustworthy in no way means we don't go ahead and use it. However, we must be people who embody the love of the Lord in the way we live to give people an affirmation of the proclamation of the gospel that we make. The power is in the message. But also remember, Marshall McLuhan was probably right, not a Christian, but a student of media. He said, the medium is the message. We are the message that so many people are going to first read when it comes to sharing Christ with a generation that has no bearing in their life or any relationship to the truth of God's Word. And this is what postmodern people are looking for. They remind me of the hippies of my generation in the 60s. I saw a sign with a hippie. He was carrying a sign on one side. It says, Christ, yes. And on the back it said, Christianity, no. What was he saying? I don't want any of that junk. I don't want any of that plastic stuff. Look, postmodern people are looking for authenticity. And I might say people throughout history have been looking for real people. And Christians, above all people, should be real. 
They're looking for spirituality, and real people are spiritual people. Actually, the only people who are spiritual are real people. People who can say like Paul, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a violent aggressor. Hey, look, but God's grace has changed all that. He's making a difference in my life. And then they're looking for community. You know how we're going to experience community in this church? By being a prisoner of Christ Jesus, by being a brother or a sister in Christ, a loving brother or sister in Christ, by being fellow workers, and by being people who are willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ in this spiritual battle. Let's pray. Would you commit yourself to be like Paul? And you know the rest of that verse. It says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So please understand that the imitation of Christ is not a precondition for becoming a Christian. Rather, it is the fruit or the outcome of adopting another approach that Paul took. He said, for to me to live is Christ. Make Christ your life. The call of Jesus is give up on yourself and give your life to me and I will accomplish things you never dreamed of through your life if you will do that. Would you do that in your own heart right now? Just take a moment and say, Lord, I want to be your prisoner. I want to take every thought captive to obedience to you. And Lord, I want to be a brother, a loving brother or sister in Christ. And I want to join in the building of the body of Christ. And Lord, I want to follow you and be a good soldier. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This is going to conclude our time today. We're not going to have a formal invitation. But the pastors, elders, and other prayer counselors will be here. If you have any kind of prayer need, physical, relational, whatever, we'll stay here and greet you and minister to you at that time. You're dismissed. Thank you.